NATO admits Sweden. I think this only underscores yet again the strategic debacle that Putin's invasion or reinvasion of Ukraine has produced uh, for Russia. There could be a ceasefire in Gaza by next week. At least my, my, my national security advisor tells me that we're close. We're close. It's not done yet. And my hope is by next Monday we'll have a ceasefire. And South African girls revolutionizing skateboarding. Because I do believe that skateboarding can teach life lessons to the kids and it can help them a lot. Today is Tuesday, February 27th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I'm Scott Walterman. Sweden applied to join NATO in May 2022. The final hurdle was cleared Monday when Hungary became the final vote in the alliance to make it official. Sweden will become the 32nd member. More now from Henry Ridgewell in London. A flagpole stands empty at NATO headquarters in Brussels, waiting to hold aloft the Swedish colours. The final hurdle to Sweden's membership was cleared Monday as Hungarian lawmakers voted to ratify the bid more than 600 days after it was submitted. Urging MPs to vote for the ratification, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban said Swedish-Hungarian military cooperation and Sweden's accession to NATO will strengthen Hungary's security. Hungary was the last of NATO's 31 members to ratify Sweden's application, which Sweden submitted jointly with Finland in May 2022, three months after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Orban had delayed the vote over Sweden's criticism of democratic backsliding in Hungary. But a visit by Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Christensen to Budapest Friday and the purchase by Hungary of four Swedish Gripen fighter jets overcame the tensions. Christensen said it was a historic day. Sweden is expected to officially join NATO in the coming weeks, breaking its decades-long policy of military non-alignment. Robert Dalsio is a senior analyst at the Swedish Defence Research Agency. The final piece of the puzzle falling into place, making NATO's position uh, in the Nordic-Baltic region whole. Sweden gains security in the crowd and uh, uh, <coughs> supported by American nuclear deterrence. Sweden also brings valuable military capabilities to the alliance. We have a, a modern air force uh, with um, uh, Gripen planes. Uh, we have uh, excellent submarines, uh, specially adapted to the conditions in the Baltic Sea. <clears throat> we have a small but uh, uh, high-tech navy. Uh, and we have, uh, on the ground, we have subarctic capabilities. Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia are widely seen as among the most vulnerable NATO member states to a potential attack by Russia. Having Finland and Sweden in the alliance creates a powerful deterrence, say analysts. Charlie Salonius Pasternak of the Finnish Institute for International Affairs. Enabling the defence of uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia uh, from different angles 
it will be possible to do very large combined air operations looking at directions from north finland and northwest western sweden with both of those countries as as nato members something which was not possible to plan uh, as little as a year ago an accession ceremony is expected in the coming days after final formalities are completed. NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg said Monday that Sweden's accession will make us all stronger and safer. Russia did not immediately respond. In the past, it has said that NATO membership would make Sweden a legitimate target for Russian retaliatory measures. Henry Ridgewell, VOA News, London. Joining us now to talk about this is Charles Kupchen with the Council on Foreign Relations. So um, let's start with the uh, with the vote to let Sweden in. Big moment for them. 18 months, uh, 31 votes. They become the 32nd member of NATO. Yeah, it's a, it's a big day for Sweden. Not a shining day for Hungary in the sense that Orban dragged his feet, tried to play the bad boy of NATO by waiting and waiting and waiting. And it seems he did two things. One was to exact a pound of flesh, getting some gripping fighters from Sweden, maybe negotiated the price down, who knows. And the other is that he he wants to put himself out as the head of a far-right movement in Europe that is more pro-Russian, more anti-EU, that has a, a version of the West that is about basically white Christianity, uh, a kind of political orientation not unlike you see among Trump supporters in the United States. And I think he thought that by dragging his feet on Swedish membership, he would strengthen his position as the leader of that kind of far-right grouping in the EU. It was also a huge miscalculation by Putin, if you look back, uh, who just added 800, if you include Finland, 800 miles of NATO border on his country. It is a fundamental strategic defeat for Putin. If you go back and you look at what he said as he was getting ready to invade Ukraine, it was about undoing the post-Cold War settlement, pushing NATO forces away from the eastern flank, weakening the West's posture, What does he have instead? A terrible war in Ukraine, in which the Ukrainians, at least so far, have rebuffed Putin's effort to take over the country. And I think it's permanent. He's lost Ukraine because he's alienated every Ukrainian. He has led to a bigger NATO, not a weaker NATO, two new members, Sweden and Finland, both of which have top-of-the-line modern militaries, and Finland has a long land border with Russia. That means that the Russians are going to need to spend more time worrying about that border. And he's got lots of new NATO forces 
on the eastern flank. Forward positioned combat troops right along the east, all the way from the Baltics down to Romania and Bulgaria. So this is a, a war, the one in Ukraine, that has fundamentally backfired on Putin. Charles Kupchin with the Council on Foreign Relations. Tout a été évoqué ce soir de manière très libre et directe. French President Emmanuel Macron said on Monday that France could not rule out sending troops on the ground to Ukraine and that he would maintain a strategic ambiguity on the subject. Speaking after a conference of 20 European leaders in Paris, Macron added that European countries have agreed to work on sanctioning countries that were helping Russia bypass its existing Ukraine-related sanctions. Also at the conference, the Netherlands said it will contribute about $108 million to a Czech initiative to buy ammunition for Ukraine from countries around the world. Last week, the death of Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny made the front page of a Moscow Weekly. Most of the papers were confiscated. But even so, the editor says he stands by his decision to devote its front page to Navalny's death. Reuters correspondent Rachel Faber has this story. The weekly, called Sobosednik, ran a front-page photo of Navalny with the caption, But there is hope, four days after his death. The issue contained a two-page spread with an obituary and coverage of vigils in his honor across Moscow. It was a striking contrast with most Russian state media, where Navalny's sudden death in an Arctic penal colony was either ignored or mentioned only briefly. So Besednik's editor-in-chief, Oleg Roldugin, spoke to Reuters on Monday. We are doing our normal journalistic work. We are doing a normal newspaper. There is a newsworthy occurrence. A person, quite famous, quite influential, has died. Shortly after hitting newsstands, virtually all copies were confiscated. Sobosednik focuses on coverage of society and politics with a liberal bent and previously published several interviews with Navalny. Roldugin says Sobosednik is effectively the last printed newspaper in Russia that, quote, does journalism, not politics. Under President Vladimir Putin, the Kremlin has clamped down on press freedom. Most independent media outlets have been shuttered or forced into exile. All state media is directed to tow the government line. Russia's internet watchdog blocked the newspaper's website after the start of the Ukraine conflict, and the paper has tried to create new sites that readers inside Russia can access. When news of its confiscation began circulating in Moscow, Roldugin says he received many calls asking for extra copies. He said the newspaper, which has a print circulation of around 154,000, is now more popular than ever among readers. For now, there are no problems with distributors, but Roldugin says the paper is braced for a possible further clampdown. Reuters correspondent Rachel Faber. We're following these other stories from around the world. Colombia's government and the National Liberation Army rebels said on Monday they have held peace talks and will meet again in April. The guerrilla group has fought the government since 1964. They met in Havana over the weekend and will meet again in Venezuela 
clinic relief. The UN nuclear watchdog has voiced growing concern over Iran's ability to build nuclear weapons, fueled by recent public statements in the country, according to a confidential report seen by the news service AFP on Monday. Tensions between Iran and the International Atomic Energy Agency have repeatedly flared since a 2015 deal aimed at curbing Tehran's nuclear program in exchange for sanction relief has been left in tatters. A U.S. airman has died after setting himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in Washington on Sunday in protest over the war in Gaza. President Joe Biden says he hopes to have a ceasefire in the conflict between Israel and Hamas by next week. At least my, my, my national security advisor tells me that we're close. We're close. It's not done yet. And my hope is by next Monday we'll have a ceasefire. Also from the Palestinian territories on Monday, Palestinian Prime Minister Mohammed Shatea announced his resignation on Monday as the Palestinian Authority looks to build support for an expanded role following Israel's war against the Islamist group Hamas in Gaza. Reuters correspondent Lucy Fielder has more details on this. Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas is undergrowing U.S. pressure to shake up the Palestinian Authority. Several Western countries, including the United States, want the PA to play a role in running the Gaza Strip, which is currently ruled by Hamas, should the war come to an end. Washington says a ceasefire is now close. Israeli officials headed on Monday to Qatar, where Hamas has its political office, to work on terms of a Gaza truce and hostage release deal, a source told Reuters. Shataye, an economist who took office in 2019, said the next stage should take account of the emerging reality in Gaza, which has been laid waste by nearly five months of heavy fighting. Nearly 30,000 people have been killed by Israel's bombardment and ground offensive, according to the enclave's health authorities, and most Gazans have been made homeless. This decision comes based on the political, security and economic developments that are related to the offensive on our people in Gaza and to the unprecedented escalation in the West Bank and Jerusalem, and to what our people and the Palestinian cause are facing, as well as our political system that has been aggressively attacked in an unprecedented manner, and based on the genocide, forced displacement, and the starving of people in Gaza. Israel says it will not accept Palestinian Authority rule over the Gaza Strip after the war. And it has vowed to destroy Hamas, whose attack on southern Israel on October 7th killed some 1,200 people, according to Israeli tallies. Fatah, the faction that controls the Palestinian Authority, and Hamas have made efforts to reach an agreement over a unity government and are due to meet in Moscow on Wednesday. Steyer's resignation must still be accepted by Abbas, who may ask him to stay on as caretaker until a permanent replacement is appointed. Reuters correspondent Lucy Fielder, Hamas is a U.S.-designated terrorist group. VOA's International Edition continues. I'm Scott Walterman. The Ugandan government says about 30 Ugandans are stuck in Myanmar being forced to work as online scammers, 
Officials say they were lured there by traffickers with the promise of a job and are now being held by gangs who run the scamming operations. Francis Mugisha, an information technology expert, is back in Uganda after a nightmare of an experience in Asia. He says it began after he took a job as a data manager and IT specialist in Laos. Not long after his arrival, Mugisha says his bosses told him he owed them 16,000 Chinese yen, the equivalent of $2,225, and the conditions of his job abruptly changed. I never expected someone to come and tell me, I've bought you, you're my slave, you have to work for me. Mugisha says they kept his passport and phone and then sold him to another company based in Myanmar, sending him by boat on the Mekong River. But instead of managing data, he was forced to conduct online scamming. Mugisha says he was forced to work long hours under harsh conditions. Uh, times you, you're chained to the chair, like if say, uh, no, I cannot work, I want to go. They chain you to your chair. Mugisha says he managed to finally get out by contacting as many people as he could, reaching out to embassies to get help and support from the International Justice Mission and International Rights NGO and the Ugandan Embassy in Myanmar. Kampala officials say about 30 Ugandans are being held under similar conditions at Myanmar compounds in areas held by rebels fighting the country's military junta. Officials say they are run by Chinese organized crime gangs who often smuggle victims through Kenya. The victims fall into the hands of the gangs once they reach Asia. Derek Vasali Rachigeni is Uganda's deputy national coordinator for the prevention of human trafficking. Kigeni says Ugandan authorities raised the matter with Myanmar's Prime Minister Min Aung Hlaing. Mina Chang is the founder of the non-profit group Humanity Research Consultants, which fights human trafficking. She says gangs target people who speak English and other languages that can be used to scam people outside of China. East Africans do speak good English, so that means it's easier um, when it comes to scamming that they, they may be able to, to target other nationalities more than just Chinese. Uh. Also, sometimes the criminals, they do also want to use the victims to, um, let's say, having video calls uh, with their scammed victim. Then you need somebody who can actually speak English, right? Like if you put a Chinese who doesn't speak English, then it would be hard to do that kind of job. Chang says the criminal activity is protected through systemic corruption in Myanmar, both in junta and rebel-controlled areas where powerful individuals and governments shelter the China-based criminal gangs. Halima Athmani for VA News, Kampala, Uganda. And finally, there's a skateboarding revolution taking place in South Africa. The once predominantly male sport is attracting more and more women. VOA's Sahir Kassam reports from Johannesburg. Boards, helmets, knee pads, and a whole lot of determination to bounce back when you take a tumble. Welcome to Girlskate. It might not always look graceful, but it's a blast for these kids. Girlskate was founded by Shawnee Jacobs about 10 years ago when she realized she was often the only female in her local skate park. Shawnee was determined to spark a change. Today, she holds free training sessions in Soweto and other impoverished communities like this one in Kaya Sands. This was the perfect opportunity for me to 
get a skate park in for them and start doing sessions with them. Um, because I do believe that skateboarding can teach life lessons to the kids and it can help them a lot. Perseverance, confidence and a splash of self-expression. Jacobs is instilling these values in his students. 17-year-old Maya Mashaba has only been skating for three months but is already feeling the thrill. Oh, I feel so good. Like, it's very fun. It's scary to see someone else doing it, but once you try, it's very nice. Mashaba has women's skateboarding trailblazers like skateboarder Bopelo Awua to look up to. She represented South Africa at the Tokyo Olympics in 2021. Awua was only 15 years old and unfortunately, an injury kept her out of the games, but her presence was part of a trend. Awua initially got into skateboarding because of her brother. She would see him in the yard skating with his friends, and when they weren't looking, she would borrow his board and start practicing. Today, the girls don't have to sneak around to play with the boys. Now I feel like they don't really have a choice because there's been such a rapid growth of female skateboarders, it's kind of become normal. And some of the female skateboarders, I mean, we're skating at the same level or very close level as the boys, so there's not really much they can do about it, but just to accept it openly. Awua is trying to win a spot in this year's Olympic Games in Paris. And if she gets there, she wants her performance to bring even more goals to the sport that has given us so much joy. Siri Kassam, VOA News, Johannesburg, South Africa. This has been International Edition of The Voice of America. On behalf of everyone at VOA, thank you so much for spending your time with us. For pictures, stories, videos, and more, follow VOA News on your favorite social media platform and online at voanews.com. In Washington, I'm Scott Walterman. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The Department of State has announced a reward offer of up to $10 million for information leading to the identification and or location of any individual who holds a key leadership position in the Hive Ransomware Variant Transnational Organized Crime Group. There is an additional reward of up to $5 million for information leading to the arrest and or conviction of any individual in any country conspiring to participate in or attempting to participate in Hive ransomware activity. The Hive ransomware variant, first discovered in 2021, targeted victims in over 80 countries around the world, including hospitals, school districts, financial firms, and critical infrastructure, resulting in several multi-million dollar ransom payments. Beginning in late July 2022, the FBI penetrated Hive's computer networks, obtained its decryption keys, and offered them to victims worldwide, preventing victims from having to pay $130 million in ransom demanded. After infiltrating Hive's networks, the FBI provided over 300 decryption keys to Hive victims who were under attack. In addition, the FBI distributed over 1,000 additional decryption keys to previous Hive victims. Ransomware is a type of malicious software or malware which prevents a user from accessing computer files, systems, or networks until a ransom is paid for their return. 
The Hive ransomware operated as a service wherein the extortion profit was shared between the ransomware owners, developers, and the affiliates that effectuated the computer intrusions and deployed the ransomware. In January, the Department of Justice, in coordination with German law enforcement and the Netherlands National High Tech Crime Unit, seized control of the servers and websites that Hive uses to communicate with its members, disrupting Hive's ability to attack and extort victims. If you have information on Hive leaders, please contact the FBI at plus one three two one two nine seven six two nine two on Signal or Telegram. All identities are kept strictly confidential. The Justice Department will spare no resource to identify and bring to justice anyone, anywhere, who targets the United States with a ransomware attack, said Attorney General Merrick Garland. We will continue to work both to prevent these attacks and to provide support to victims who have been targeted. And together with our international partners, we will continue to disrupt the criminal networks that deploy these attacks. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 